This message by Mark Dever, titled The Pastor and His Community, How the Gospel Informs Our Mission Beyond the Church, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during a men's seminar at our 2009 Pastors Conference. Mark serves as senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Uh, Lord, apart from you, we would be so lost. Lord, you have brought us to yourself. We give you praise that you have committed to us the care of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we lead them well and wisely. Oh God, when we see how loving and compassionate, how giving Jesus was, we desire our churches to look like that. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for any way we've misunderstood or misled our churches. And we pray you would use this time to help us to think well together about what your will in fact is. Lord, instruct us from your word uh, better than I've prepared, uh, Lord, in a way that will bring you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I remember some years ago reading a, a book which said at one point, and I quote, Without entirely admitting it to ourselves, we let the society serve as our church. When we assume the problems of poverty and injustice will be solved governmentally, we expect the state to serve as the church. But as our culture removes more and more of its nominally Christian props, we will entertain fewer such illusions. The church itself will have to be the church. End of quote. So what do you think about that quote? The author obviously was playing on the reader's awareness of and regret for the merely nominal nature of many churches and many Christians. Our comfortable, self-centered, materialistic lives seem to belie the gospel we say we believe. And we know that. We feel that. And yet implicit in this statement is the assumption that what the church is about is solving the problems of poverty and injustice. And that the government gets involved only because our churches are being unfaithful to our purpose. Is that the case? That's what this time is about. Trying to think about that together. What you're basically about to be handed, don't start handing them yet, is a handout that's going to be everything I'm about to say. I have done this because I am doing this workshop in a really unusual way for me. I am going to read to you 35 somewhat overlapping statements as a pastor to pastors concerning the topic of the congregation's responsibility for the wider community. I've done it in this way in part because I don't know how well I'm thinking about this. And in part, because I want you to be able to be critical of very particular things rather than the whole thing. I want you to be able to see what I'm doing, think about it, and see where you might have remaining questions, or perhaps where something might be clarifying and very helpful to you. 
Now, part of what I'm doing by giving you this handout is I'm saving you from taking a lot of notes. I am blessing you with not having to quickly try to get down the quotations and hope he'll repeat something. But I'm also giving it to you in trust that you will not read ahead. (laughs) Now, you look like honorable brethren. (laughs) But I really am wasting my time up here if you read ahead. Because I could just email you all this and not have come. So I really do want you to listen to my mouth reading this stuff and the little comments I may make and... And then we'll have a lot of time for Q&A. And I am going to for free give you a handout now to everyone. No, no, not yet, guys. Not yet, guys. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. All of you who agree you will not read ahead, please be seated. Right, uh, your men of your word, please distribute the handouts. Here they go. All right, here they go. Um, brethren, this was the fruit of, um, well, in one sense of years of thinking, but that's making it rather grand, of one day sitting down and uh, trying to hammer this out and then talking to a bunch of people about it while doing it uh, and reading everything from Bob Inc. section on the transformation of creation to Tim Keller's gospel and the poor paper and Thamelios in December to stuff from a hundred years ago, trying to think about how churches were thinking about relating to their communities more widely. Uh, so I hope that these reflections are going to be useful for you. I have not evenly provided uh, scripture references throughout because some of the things are obvious. Um, but if you have questions, I think rather than ask me during these things, if you can note your questions on your copy, Then we will go back when I'm done and we will work through page by page. All right? Are we ready? Okay. Number one. Here we go. Number one of these 35 somewhat overlapping statements as a pastor to pastors concerning the topic of the congregation's responsibility for its wider community. Number one. We should have more passion for and compassion for God than for people. I think you have to begin there. And if you've ever wondered how John Piper figured this out, I think it must have been when he was working on Augustine. Because if you've ever read his Swan Song series, that very first one on Augustine, it's the first one he did, and it seems like that's where he's just figuring it out and he's getting all excited. So if you want to go read that, it's a great thing to read. His, uh, his, uh, I forget what the first one's called, Legacy of Sovereign Joy. Anyway. But I think you've got to begin here. We should have more passion for and compassion for God than for people. And if you want to know, well, what do you mean by compassion for God? That's a bit of a weird way to put it. Put that down as a question and ask me when we come to Q&A. <laughs> Number two, we should have hearts of compassion for all people because they're made in God's image. And because we ourselves have known such undeserved generosity from God. It is a privilege to be of service to any human being. And it is a joy to reflect something of God's own character in this including his concern for justice that we see so clearly in the prophets. And that Daniel 4 reference is Nebuchadnezzar, is is Daniel condemning a non-people-of-God nation for being unjust. So God cares about justice beyond just the church. God cares about justice beyond his own people. And especially to reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. In this sense, ministries of compassion and justice 
which provide to people what they cannot provide for themselves are wonderful signs of the gospel of Christ giving himself for us. Number three, suffering is an inevitable part of this fallen world. Poverty, war, famine, death, and other tragic effects of the fall will not be ended except by the bodily visible return of Christ. The heavenly city comes up, comes down rather. It's not built up. That is, it's not constructed from the ground up. God is the builder of it, Hebrews 11, Revelation 21. It is as one-sided as creation, the exodus and the incarnation, the cross and resurrection and the regeneration of an individual heart. It is a great salvation act of God. If human culture can ever be said to be redeemed, it will be God that does it, not us. Guys, three is really important. Because there are a lot of people who are thinking that somehow they see in Scripture an ability for us to transform this world by our actions. And... Suffering is an inevitable part of this fallen world. That's what the curse means. Number four, the gospel's main thrust is not the renewal of the fallen structures of this world, but rather the creation of a new community composed of those purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 5, I'm preaching the Revelation right now. What are they rejoicing about in eternity forever? It's not the cool new social systems you've figured out. It's the praising the Lamb for those that He's purchased for God. It is only through the fulfillment of the promise of forgiveness of our sins and acceptance with God that all of God's other promises are fulfilled. And there are other, there are other promises, but this is the keystone. Greg Gilbert did a great blog entry on this yesterday. When Greg does a blog, we call it a grog. He did a grog yesterday um, at the Nine Marks Post. Great one. You might want to look at on this. We must always be clear in our teaching that the joy of God's presence is superior to all the goods of this world. So as wonderful as we may think making this improvement and that improvement is, the greatest of all of our joys are in our encounter with God. And the main thrust of the gospel is in restoring that. Number five, no gospel that tells Scripture's sweeping narrative that culminates in the coming of the kingdom, but neglects to tell individuals how they can be included in that kingdom is any true gospel. You know, so I hear all the time these days, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You know, the great story of what God's doing in the world. Man, that's a parade passing me by while I'm shuffling to hell on my sins. Good for you. Glad that makes you happy. I'm headed to hell because I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the the marshal of the parade, the one who planned it all, the one for whom it all is. If you do not tell me how I can get into the parade how I personally can be forgiven of my sins and relate to my God, the great thing that God's doing in this world is dust to me. The people in Revelation, they cry out, cursing God. People do not go to hell because they want to go to hell and they want to be separated from God forever and this is their choice and therefore that just simply what's going on and they're really happy they're there like in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. That is an utterly unbiblical picture of what the Bible presents. They are cursing God in the book of Revelation. These people are asking for the mountains to fall on them. Why? Because they're not able to be included in this great plan in salvation because they are opposing God. So talk about the meta-narrative all you want, but you better tell an individual person how they can be saved, how they can have their sins forgiven and readmitted into God's presence so that they can be redemptively part of this great story that is in fact going on that we rejoice in. I'll try not to preach on them all that much. Number six, (laughs) Scripture gives us no hope. 
that society will be broadly and permanently transformed by the preaching of the gospel. Scripture gives us no hope that society will be broadly and permanently transformed by the preaching of the gospel. Number seven, individual conversions can have profound effects for good on people. Not only in eternity, but in this life too. John Wesley observed in 1787 that, I fear wherever riches have increased the essence of religion, the mind that that was in Christ has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it's possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. And these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all its branches. How then is it possible that Methodism, that is the religion of the heart, though it flourishes now as a green bay tree, should continue in this state? For the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionably increase in pride, in the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. Is there no way to prevent this, this continual declension of pure religion? We ought not to forbid people to be diligent and frugal. We must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. This is, in effect, to grow rich. What way, then, I ask again, can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. True or false, while conservative Christians are often said to be more concerned about saving souls, religious liberals give a significantly larger proportion of their income to alleviating poverty and meeting the needs of the downtrodden and underprivileged. False. Conservative evangelicals tend to give more to the poor than religious liberals. Many individual conversions have resulted in personal reformations and particular social improvements, and we hope will result in good effects in this world. So basically, what I said in these last couple is, this world will not be transformed broadly and permanently through the preaching of the gospel. But great things can happen even in this life, certainly in individuals' lives and even more broadly. There can be real progress made temporarily in limited places. Number eight, since the fall... The trajectory of unredeemed human history, the city of man, is always in the Bible to, and this is that, it's toward judgment. So you have the flood, Babel, Canaan, Egypt, Jerusalem, Babylon, Rome, and then Revelation 19. It's not quite as universal as gravity. You can see some temporary exceptions, but seemingly is inevitable in its overall tendency. Man in this fallen world is in rebellion against God. Number nine, the heavenly city in Scripture, though clearly having some continuity with our own age and existence, and that Revelation 21 reference is the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city, whatever that means, I'm not sure, but maybe there's some continuity there, is presented as arriving only after a radical disjunction with our current history, including the judgment of the wicked. And I could have put down ten times more Scripture references, but I just wanted to pick carefully. All these scripture references, brothers, are hand-picked. They're what I mean to be there unless I've mistyped something. So a radical disjunction. The material world is to be restored only after something like we experience in death and are then bodily resurrected. This is why Jesus told Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. I haven't looked up Tom Wright's John for everyone uh, on that verse, but I'd love to see what he says on that. My kingdom is not of this world, but now my kingdom is from another place. Christ's kingdom will come to this place. We know that from Acts 1. He will return in like manner. When will the kingdom come, they ask. Though when he comes, he will renew this place. He will do the transformation. 
that needs to take place, just like he'll do in our own lives. Number 10, we should have a desire to see non-Christians know the common blessings of God's kindness and providence. For example, food, water, family relations, jobs, good government, justice. Brothers, I pray about these things in my pastoral prayer on Sunday morning. I pray for the district schools almost every Sunday. You know, I pray for good government in China. You know, I want to see even people who currently are alienated from God having testimonies of His goodness in their lives. Actions to this end are appropriate for Christians and for congregations. Number 11, temporary institutions are still worthy of sincere Christian attention, thought, energy, and action. Think about marriage, for instance. There won't be marriage in heaven eternally. We know Jesus said so. And yet it's still quite worthwhile for us to spend time on it here. Our teaching must not platonically devalue this world as if we can discern better than Scripture what is of eternal value. We're to do whatever we do unto the Lord, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Number 12, we should have a desire to see all people saved. Number 13, our priority to unbelievers is the verbal proclamation of the gospel, which alone can address the greatest part of human suffering caused by the fall, and which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is in turn the fulfillment of the greatest commandments in Mark 12, which in turn interprets the heart of any cultural mandate, Genesis 1. Christians debate whether or not the cultural mandate continues, All right, for those of you who think it does continue, any cultural mandate there is, the heart of it has to be loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So Christ, in that sense, by summarizing the Old Testament, has interpreted what the heart of that must be. As Tim Keller says, evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. And Tim says that in disagreement with John Stott's book, Christian Mission to the Modern World, where John Stott tries to lay them out as separate, equal, independent things. Tim astutely notices if that's the case, then you could end up having increasingly gospel-less social action. Gospel-less. And so Tim is quite rightly, I think, recognizing the priority of evangelism here. Number 14. After the fall, note that the cultural mandate is not uniquely given to the people of God, but to humanity in general. And you can even see... So, you know, people who say, we're supposed to go and subdue the earth, you know, we Christians. Well, actually, that's we humans. Christians are never given that particular mandate. Humans are. And it's, if you look there in Genesis 4 a little bit later, all of those cultural innovations that are the kind of things that some people like to champion in the way we should engage with culture, you know, like building a city or music or metal arts, those are all in the line of Cain. Those aren't in the line of Seth. It's not the people of God who are doing those things. People made in God's image. Humans. But it's not uniquely the people of God who have that mandate. 14. Okay, now 15. We as a congregation are not required to take responsibility for the physical needs in the unbelieving community around us. Let me read that again. We as a congregation are not required to take responsibility for the physical needs in the unbelieving community around us. We do have a responsibility to care for the needs of those within our congregation. Though even within the church, there are further qualifications. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you can't be lazy. And he says to Timothy, look, if there's somebody else in her family who will care for her, you let them do it. 
And he says they need, they need to be widows that have a reputation for good works. So even inside the church, they're making qualifications. Paul's counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 about which widows to care for seems to indicate that the list was intended for Christian widows. One qualification seemed to be the lack of alternative sources of support. Thus, the instruction that family members should care for the needy first, if at all possible, shows the kind of prioritization of allowing for families, even of unbelievers, to provide support so that the church wouldn't have to do it. We can extrapolate from this to conclude that support that could be provided from outside the church, for instance from the state, should be preferred over using church funds, thus freeing church funds to be used elsewhere, that only we as churches might use them. Number 16. We should use historical examples and arguments for taking responsibility for our communities with care. And I say this because in modern books on the church, I am seeing lots of ignorance demonstrated at this point. Most people in the European past had established churches, also true in many places in America before the 1840s. So even up to the 1830s, the Congregational Church was established in Massachusetts. Therefore, the example of Calvin, the Puritans, Edwards, etc., is less directly applicable than may first appear. They were not in modern pluralistic societies with large groups of people calling themselves non-Christians. I am forever... I'm going to park here just for a moment. I am forever reading bright, godly folks writing about the example of fill-in-the-blank. And I'm thinking, but fill-in-the-blank lived in a society in which everybody there was baptized as an infant and they were all members of the same church. They assumed, they knew theologically everybody wouldn't be elect, but everybody, or almost everybody, with maybe a known, you know, unrepentant person or two, everybody was a member of the church, the church community. So it's very difficult to separate out the kind of conversation that we need to have when I'm sitting there in the middle of D.C. with public schools around me so I think, what is my responsibility? It's a little different than the responsibility that Jonathan Edwards would have had for one indigent person in Northampton. It's just a very different world with different theological assumptions going on about what is the relation of these people I'm helping to the church. Feel free and come back and talk about that. Number 17. Many texts which seem to promote the idea of taking responsibility for our community's physical well-being. For example, the always cited Micah 6.8. Or Matthew 25, Jesus said, when you've done it, the least of these. Galatians 6, 1 John 3, are about our charity to members of the covenant community, believers, not non-Christian members of the community at large. Uh, I think if you do careful exegesis, and by careful exegesis, brothers, I just mean an honest reading of it once through in English. Uh, it's my brethren. It's just, Yeah. So I'm not saying you don't do those other things. I've given you lots of reasons already why you would. But I'm saying even again the way people who are otherwise normally responsible use these verses, I think they're not reading them very well, and I think it's God's word and your pastors. So I'm trying to help. I'm, I'm trying to say minority report here. Read those texts again. That's about believers. Eighteen. We are not forbidden from choosing to alleviate physical needs. Outside our congregation, and this we is not individual Christians. I'm speaking as a pastor to pastors leading congregations. So I'm talking to you about what we can ask our congregations to do. We are not forbidden from choosing to alleviate physical needs outside our congregation as a witness to the gospel. For example, we might choose to provide computers to local schools. We might choose to participate in disaster relief. And this is against a wrong idea of the spirituality of the church. Uh, in the 19th century, among some of our Presbyterian brethren, there grew up a very strong idea that because the church has authority over itself, it must not in any way have anything to do with the structures of the world. And while I really appreciate the heart that's coming from, I think, uh, 
that's not realistic. I mean, you're going to have to say something about what's going on. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we do have freedom to choose to do things like this. 19, we have the freedom to choose particular actions for the welfare of our community as a witness to them directly, as some of the examples I just gave, or more remotely by cooperating with other congregations and Christians in the formation of denominations, educational institutions, a great variety of boards, charities, and other organizations. So, for example, Capitol Hill Baptist and Covenant Life may well work together for certain causes. You know, For that matter, depending on what the cause is, we may work together with our local Roman Catholic Church or with an atheist association if we have a common civil good that we're trying to pursue. I'm not saying we do that. I'm saying I think we have the freedom to do that. If we do that with our eyes open. Number 20, though my elders have told me not to do that in one particularly interesting case lately that you can ask about if you want in the question time. Number 20, we should never mistake social action or mercy ministries, caring for the poor, soup kitchens, for evangelism. We should never mistake this for evangelism. Don't be, it may be means to it. Number 21, we should expect our members to be involved in a wide variety of good works in caring for the poor. Just like Dorcas was known for her good deeds. Some of which we may choose to hold up as examples to other members of our congregation. This can be done without leading the congregation as a whole to own or support those particular ministries, whether by congregationally funding them or staffing them. We personally even can set an example for others. So John Wesley began the year 1785 by spending five days in walking through London, often ankle-deep in sludge and melting snow, to beg 200 pounds, which he employed in purchasing clothing for the poor. He visited the destitute in their own houses to see with his own eyes what their wants were and how they might be effectually relieved. Wesley was 81 years old. So individuals, Christians, should have lives marked by caring for the poor. As the church, we uniquely have been given the stewardship of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. 22. We as pastors must make sure that matters of secondary importance should not absorb our attention and energy to the detriment of our primary charge to preach the gospel. So basically, John Wesley better have been on vacation from his church that week or else he was going to have a hard week. 23. Our exposition of God's word should certainly equip our members by applying biblical teaching to issues, excuse me, which are or should be of current concern. Poverty, gender, racism, justice. Again, see some of the Lord's concerns in Isaiah 1. This teaching, however, should normally be given without seeming to commit the church to particular policy solutions to problems affecting the wider community. For example, Christian preachers could strenuously advocate the abolition of slavery without spending their sermons laying out how specifically it was to be done. We can speak to oughts without untangling all the hows. 24. We should warn our congregations about the dangers of accumulating wealth. Many Christians throughout history have read the Bible as being more suspicious of wealth than we modern American Christians seem to be. Everyone from Augustine to Wesley has written eloquently of the dangerous gravity of wealth and the worldly pull it can have on our hearts. Such teaching need not cause us to reject careful financial planning, but it should cause us to be more vigilant, more wary, and even suspicious of wealth than we tend to be. We should give fresh attention to cautionary passages, like Matthew 6.21 and Luke 12.34 and 1 Timothy 6.17-19 and James 5.1-6. 
According to the Bible, wealth can be more spiritually dangerous than poverty. 25. We must carefully prioritize the responsibilities unique to the church. Pastors, listen. I mean, this is for you. We must carefully prioritize the responsibilities unique to the church. Matters like a concern for education, politics, mercy ministries, for those beyond the church's membership, are proper concerns for Christians to have. But the church itself is not the structure for addressing such concerns. They are the proper concern of Christians in schools, governments, and other structures of society. In fact, if such concerns came to be the focus of the church, they could potentially distract the church from its main and unique responsibility, that of incarnating and proclaiming the gospel. And then I quote John Murray here. To the church is committed the task of proclaiming the whole counsel of God, and therefore the counsel of God, as it bears upon the responsibility of all persons and institutions. While the church is not to discharge the functions of other institutions, such as the state and the family, nevertheless it is charged to define what the functions of these institutions are. To put the matter bluntly, the church is not to engage in politics. Its members must do so but only in their capacity as citizens of the state, not as members of the church, end of quote. So we want to protect the practice of evangelism and the priority of evangelism in the life of the local church. We never want to allow our congregation's activity in caring for the needs of the community to diminish or encroach upon the priority of the gospel. Okay? You're doing great. We're getting through these guys. Number 26. We must beware of dividing the church unnecessarily over non-essential issues in which we involve the congregation. For example, example, nuclear disarmament, constitutional amendments, particular art outreaches, or ministries in the community. Number 27, we must be aware of the deadly distraction that such good deeds have been to earlier generations. For example, the social gospel movement. And then I just had a note to myself there. If people wanted to use, don't worry about it. Number 28, We must ask ourselves and others whether or not we are more excited by and about the gospel or other secondary issues, and if others perceive this in our ministry. Let me say that again. This is one for you to take home and share with your elders. We must ask ourselves and others whether or not we are more excited by and about the gospel or other secondary issues, and if others perceive this in our ministry. So for me, it would be, you know, Mark, are you more excited about the gospel or church membership? You know, well, I'm more excited about the gospel. I'm plenty excited about church membership, but I'm more excited about the gospel. 29. We must be on guard against the preference many of our own members, perhaps especially younger ones, or ones with more theological doubts, may have the preference many of our own members may have for doing ministry which is valued by unbelievers. I don't know how many times I've heard people lately use Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 2 about unbelievers seeing our good deeds and praising God. You know, as if we know what we're to do by what brings us a good reputation in the community. Ah, uh, kind of. Uh, those passages that speak of unbelievers seeing our good deeds and praising God must be understood along with promises of persecution for following Christ. And remembering that Christ himself was finally rejected by the crowds and executed. Certainly, popularity in our community is a poor guide to faithfulness in ministry. So I'm not saying there's never anything we do to gain a good reputation with outsiders. I'm not saying there's never anything we as Capitol Hill Baptist Church do. Never anything that we do. But Mark, too many negatives. We as Capitol Hill Baptist Church do things in order to gain a good reputation with the community. We do. But we would never be guided 
in our decisions finally about what we're doing by that consideration alone. Number 30, we must carefully consider the amount of our members' time, vision, excitement, and prayers we are encouraging to be occupied by actions non-Christians might do when non-Christians will never be giving themselves to evangelizing our community or beyond. 31, we must beware the popular, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words, mindset. Similarly, the gospel is, properly speaking, preached, not done. Though our actions can certainly affirm it. For example, John 13, 34, and 35. Though even here it's interesting that to note that it is love for one another that is said to point to the gospel. Social ministry done by the church should be self-consciously engaged in the hope, prayer, and design of sharing the gospel. Uh, Gresham Machen wrote that material benefits were never valued in the apostolic age for their own sake. They were never regarded as substitutes for spiritual things. That lesson needs to be learned. Social betterment, though important, is insufficient. It must always be supplemented by God's unspeakable gift. End quote. 32, we must allow some latitude between pastors on differing judgment calls on the particulars of some of these secondary issues. For example, how to oppose abortion, how much they would cooperate with non-evangelicals in social ministries, etc. 33, we must beware of the attraction to join our church certain non-gospel activities may cause. For example, your cool music or a school that kids, parents want their kids in or certain community help programs that somebody really likes. And we must therefore redouble our carefulness in only taking in members who understand the gospel and give evidence of regeneration. 34. It is our duties as under-shepherds. In our duties as under-shepherds, we want to protect our flock from the well-meaning writings and teachings of those who emphasize their role of making a difference in the culture. Those individuals may be uniquely gifted and called, but it is not a biblical model for the local church. 35. We must not be naive in this. We should realize that the priority of evangelism is always one of the most difficult things for the pastor to maintain in his own life and in the congregation's ministry. Da-da-da-da, 35 theses nailed at Covenant Life Church. There it is. That was my day off, friends, all gone right down the tube in those 35 statements. Now, Mark, how much, when are we, when are we done here? Uh, 12.45. 12.45. Oh, we have almost an hour. We might not even use all the time. All right, guys, you may put up your hand and ask a question, but only in reference to a particular number that we can all then turn to and look at. And you have to wait till the microphone is brought to you. And when you get the microphone, you've got to say your full name, your position, your church, and where your church is. For example, Mark Dever, pastor, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Washington. All right? So with those ground rules, we give our host pastor the uh, first question. The gentleman in the black from uh, ABC. My name is Joshua Harris, and I'm a pastor here at Covenant Life Church. And in reference to number 34, yeah. I want to protect our flock from well-meaning writings and teachings. I'm just curious if you were willing to name any names there. Um, no, because... Um, because I think so many of them are either probably innocuous to this group or there's enough good stuff in them. I don't mean to try to pick a fight. I'm just saying as shepherds, we need to have our eyes open to this. You know, so, for example, you know, there, there's an irony in one sense that I go around and I'm seen as the kind of negative guy on this stuff. 
Because the way Nine Marks got started in part was a, a local neighbor, and I've told this story before, I don't know if I've told it on tape, but uh, a neighbor on the hill uh, said that he'd never, he'd been living there like 10, 20 years, said he'd never seen a church make such a difference in a community, not a member of our church or any church attender. And uh, basically over the next three years, he gave us $300,000 to get Nine Marks started because he wanted us to try to help other churches make a difference in their communities. Well, the irony is deep, isn't it? You know, <laughs> but I don't go around talking about that because when one says that's not our, part, our, our point, I understand if somebody's a non-Christian, how they could see that and appreciate some effects. But that's kind of not what we're aiming at. We're aiming at people's eternal salvation, including his. So, um, the, it, yeah, you just have to sift through each author and the kind of things they're saying, specific claims. So you can be encouraged that God in his kindness will sometimes do wonderfully uh, constructive and merciful things in a community. But that doesn't necessarily tell me what I should do other than preach the gospel. And sometimes people, in their excitement to share things they've seen the Lord do, they think those are prescriptive of what, therefore, we should do. So even in the way we wrote the deliberate church, we kept trying to say, we're not saying you should do it this way. We're telling you how we try to implement these biblical principles. And if you learn stuff there, that's great. But I do not assume that if you do whatever we did at CHBC, you'll see happen what we saw happen. Or what you do at Covenant Life. I mean, just the Lord doesn't work like that. We're to be obedient, and it's His Spirit's sovereign decision over what will happen. Yeah. Yes, right over here. Helma Navila, Misión de Gracia Church, El Paso, Texas. Regarding uh, point 24. The same one, yep. 34. 24. 24. 24. 24. Hold on. Yep. Um, any, any recommend recommendations on how to um, teach the uh, the church on accumulating wealth without uh, sounding like, uh, you know, I, I want you to give because this is what the Bible teaches and uh, be sounding at the same time at, as, as someone who wants their money, you know, when you have so many wealthy members. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, a few things. Uh, I mean, just one very directly, you don't have to tell them to give to your church. So... Uh, I could well imagine saying, you know, give your money away and you don't have to give it to us. I'm just warning you that your money has a hold on you. And if you don't believe it, why don't you look at how hard it is to write a check? And I'm telling you, every time you sign that check, it's like signing your Declaration of Independence from your would-be spiritual master. So get signing. You know, it doesn't have to be to us. But just to somebody that you think is going to be who needs the money or you think is worthwhile in the ministry they'll have. Uh, I think we need to just preach expositionally through some of these texts, some of these passages that warn about wealth, and there are a lot more in Proverbs. Um, at the same time, when I'm applying that to individuals, because you've got to know your congregation, and I've got some very sensitively conscienced people in our church, I know if I preach a message like that, I'm going to have ten people who are feeling probably wrongly convicted, or at least misconvicted, and I or other elders are going to have to sit down and sort out well, actually, no, it's wise for you to plan like that financially. It's kind to your children. It's kind to the churches. You should do that. But that's why we have local churches, so we can take that kind of individual care and attention. But from the pulpit, I need to use my guns and blast away 
Because most of our hearts are pretty hardened, at least in our prosperous society, and we need, we need to realize the danger that's there. Yeah. I mean, I think Randy Alcorn's book on money, possessions, and eternity is not entirely good, but I would say it's largely good and helpful in general on this. Yeah. And I can't even remember why I said that, but I know I've had that judgment before, so I passed it on. Yes. <laughs> Other. Oh, it happens. Age. Yes, sir. Bill Farley, pastor, Grace Christian Fellowship, Spokane, Washington. Uh, this week I had a couple of my church come to me. They, they're involved in a ministry. This is question 25, I'm sorry. Yeah. They're involved in a ministry reaching out to homosexuals in our area to try and help, help them uh, come out of the homosexual lifestyle. They're part of my congregation. They came to me asking for the support and help of our congregation. And I got into a long conversation with them about this very subject. We must carefully prioritize the responsibilities unique to the church. Yeah. So I asked them questions like, and I want to get your take on this, uh, you know, because I didn't know exactly what to do, but I had this feeling that uh, of wanting to, to somehow channel this whole thing back through the local church and emphasize the local church, but not knowing quite how to go about it. So we'll, we'd like to get your response on that. Great pastoral example. Um, certainly the work they're undertaking is good. Now, I don't know their particular work, but I mean their, their object that you've enunciated is a great object. Now, it wouldn't be true to say that's all the church is about. So we don't want to turn the church into a recovery group for that sin. That that would be wrong. Most people don't struggle with that sin. There are a lot of other issues going on that need our time and attention. Presumably any members we have involved in that should understand that. Well, then the question is, okay, what kind of support are they looking for? Uh, are they looking for an elder okay that they're not involved in something wacko? Well, that we, could cert- we should certainly support, and that we should certainly provide. And in fact, I think we're negligence as elders if we allow our members to get involved in ministries that are not okay. We should be saying something to them about that. So we definitely want to look at that. Okay, what if it's more than that? What if, let's say, they want to, to share in the congregation, ask for prayer, for people to, members to know they're working on this, to pray for them in that? Well, then I would say that's probably yes. I mean, you, you have to deal with a limited way you ask for the whole congregation to pray. They can certainly share with their small groups, with their friends. I don't know if you have a meeting for prayer or you an email or I don't know how you do it, but you would have to decide that kind of in the budget of time and space you have. But certainly there would be nothing that I would understand that would be inappropriate by the nature of doing that. Now it gets a little more if you say, what if they want funding for this? The congregation's dollars being used. Okay, there you cross a very important line into now you don't want this to be a conscientious problem for anyone in the church. Now presumably it shouldn't be. If, if, if the, if your church's teaching on homosexuality is clear, on salvation and the gospel is clear, um, uh, then it might get down to just more prudential questions. What are the other demands in our budget and opportunities that we have before us? And should we prioritize that? And part of that may be how much we trust the organization they're working with and how much do we think that they as individuals are the best users of this money. And then the, the even further step would be actually hiring a staff person to lead this kind of work. So I would say those are the kind of decisions you have to make. I don't think any of them must be wrong. But the further you go, I would say the, the more clear it would have to be to, to the elders and the more you would need to be willing to lead the congregation into that. So in our church, I don't know that we've had any, any particular sub-ministry penetrate kind of that deeply into the life of our church, maybe children's ministry or college ministry maybe or... Um, angel tree, which we don't fund, 
but it's been going. We were one of the pilot churches for it in the whole country. So we've been doing this since the early, mid-90s. And we have relationships built up and people come. And so that's rooted in the congregation. The, the budget doesn't keep that going. The staff member doesn't keep it going. The members do that. So we, we, we tend to wait to see a ministry catch traction with the members. And then we're kind of lagging behind with congregational support to see them persevere in it first. Or else we're going to be like a popcorn machine. And there's just going to be so much that goes on that it's gone in three weeks when they're tired or two months when they move. Sorry for that long answer. I'll try to keep it shorter. Yes, sir. Um, Phil Sasser, pastor, Sovereign Grace Church, Apex, North Carolina. <clears throat> Mark, in reference to your statement on, on question number 25, that the church um, is not to engage in politics, um, <clears throat> certainly there are times, primarily election times, when um, positions that we might hold and encourage our folks to hold, such as being against abortion, um, really come to a test. And my question would be, what kind of public statements do you make and what do you, what do you carefully not make in, in elections? And I would be interested also to hear um, your church's position on uh, pro-life and how you're posturing as a church in that battle. Um. Uh, as a church, uh, uh, the, the members don't know how I am registered or how I vote. Um, uh, we, uh, I mean, I guess in a shorthand I could say, why is it okay for an, uh, an anti-abortion person to vote for Obama? I mean, how could you see that? Well, it could be that you think the presidency has shown itself in the last 35 years to have no effect in the area of opposing abortion. And while you oppose abortion, there are other issues that you also care about. And you could decide that the other candidate, though he's wrong on that issue, is right on some other issues. So I would not equate a vote for somebody who supports abortion with therefore being I support abortion. Now, I'm telling you the theory. I have my own personal decision that I make and why, which I might share with you in private, but which I deliberately do not broadcast. I'm trying to say, as evangelicals, we're united not around a particular position on, a, on even the most pressing of social issues, um, though, uh, it, well, that's not, I didn't say that well. Even if we're united on that position, there's a big difference between that position and the politics of how something happens and gets done. So, uh, yeah. So what I want to do is lay out the principles from Scripture, clearly, uh, and then... Uh, leave it to the members of the church as they're engaged as citizens in political action in ways that I'm not to contest with each other over what the best way is to try to persuade the public to fulfill that good for itself. So, for example, this last uh, Sunday morning, I prayed for President Obama in my pastoral prayer, as I usually do. Not every Sunday, but usually I do. We're told by Paul to pray for those in authority over us. So we pray for local authorities, state kind of authorities, Sometimes I'll pray for authorities in business and other education, um, and, and often I'll pray for the president. Um, and uh, I think I prayed for him to be filled with wisdom, understanding, and compassion. Now, what I meant by compassion was in part compassion on the million of babies. That I'd love to see you forward stopping their slaughter. Um, and I said that the previous Sunday. You know, I, I, I prayed specifically. The Lord would give him wisdom as he was overseas, acting for us as a nation. And that he would also change his heart on the innocence of 
human life and the reality of human life and the unborn. Uh, and we have a lot of visitors, and I get comments sometimes at the door on those prayers. Um, I'm not aware of any member of our church that thinks abortion is okay. Uh, we had a member who was working uh, at a place that um, did a certain kind of fertility work where they would have embryos stored and um, we raised moral questions about her working there with her and encouraged the husband to help her not to work there. Is that helpful at all, Phil? All right. Yes. Jose Mercado, pastor of Iglesia Gracia Soberana here in Gettysburg. Uh, on number 34, you say to want to protect our flock from writings and teachings. What would be writings that we can point them on some of these issues that would be good for them to, to interact with? Yeah, directly on top of it, I don't know. Uh, Don Carson's Christ and Culture, um, David Wells' stuff. Um, yeah, I, I want to say Tim Keller's Ministries of Mercy, but I think Tim regularly takes Scripture that is about believers and applies it to unbelievers. But when you get to the cash value of the advice he gives, I agree with him entirely usually. So if you look at his article in Themelios that I reference here, that I have the reference for, um, I, I don't think he handles Scripture particularly well in it. I don't think he understands Jonathan Edwards particularly well in it, at least how to apply him to today. Um, but the further on you get in the article, the more I agree with him. And by the time you get to practical cash value, what does the church do? I think I agree with every word. And he's got good, practical, prudential wisdom. Um, I can't think of a lot of good things out there. That may just be my ignorance of not reading enough or enough of the right stuff. It may be there. Sorry, I can't help more. Yes. Jerry Caesar, pastor, St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, question in reference to number 17. Yep. Uh, many texts which seem to promote the idea of taking responsibility for our community's physical well-being. You list those texts, charity to members, covenant community, believers, etc. Um, I, I think any time you raise that, somebody's going to raise the text in Luke of the Good Samaritan, sure. and I think falsely apply it, but it would appear, I think, broadly to be talking about mercy ministries to uh, who, who is our neighbor. Well, it's anyone in need. Um, can you make some comments on that? Yeah. Um, that question comes to Jesus out of the, the young ruler saying, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus is trying to show the fruit of someone's life. So I think what we get from that is what we get from uh, God's concern in the Old Testament, which is he cares about justice, he cares about mercy. We know that already. Uh, so I agree with that. I think what he was doing, he was applying it to a place that would be a blind spot to that wrongly, ethnically bigoted first century Jew in the way he was constraining God's promises and God's concerns. Uh, Gentiles were dogs. Uh, Jesus is showing that's not the case. That's not quite the same thing as moving along saying the church then should make a priority of ministry to those outside of his number. Well, no, it's not saying that at all. It's saying what we already know from Scripture, that God is God of love, yes, that he's God of justice, yes, 
that he wants everybody made in his image, treated with honor and dignity, yes, and that we uh, are giving testimony to his character when we do that, yes. All those are good and true things. Uh, that doesn't mean that's the church's particular work. So it's a great passage, not quite on the question pastors are usually asking about what our churches should be doing as churches. John. John Loftness, I'm a pastor of uh, Solid Rock Church in Riverdale, Maryland. Um, <clears throat> Mark, how do you counsel... Is this a particular number? A 30, yes, number 30. Concerned about members' time, vision, excitement. Yeah. Uh, if I could just add their wisdom in their involvement, especially when it comes to members who are involved in politics or uh, lobby groups, special interest groups, do you give them any particular guidance on how to conduct themselves as Christians and in terms of some of those issues become all-consuming. Yeah. How do you help them with that? I usually don't have enough, enough knowledge of their individual situation to be able to do that. Um, I certainly can see overall things like how much time are they around, You know, are they spending time with their family. I can deal with those issues like I could with anybody's work. So I could certainly speak to those, and our elders have spoken to those in particular cases before. Um, but things that are particular to their profession, like, hey, you need to stop lying and deceiving that guy on that deal, I'm just not going to know that stuff. So it would just be general matters of Christian conduct, I think. Well, the same thing applies. I don't know what somebody's schedule is today. I don't know what they're saying about that bill. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know the particulars of that bill. Um, so all I can do is teach what I know from Scripture about how we as Christians should behave and live. Now, if somebody has a particular case of conscience and they want to pursue that with me, which I do have that happen, they have a particular decision in front of them and they want moral counsel from their pastor, one of their elders, uh, that happens with some regularity. And those will be a telephone conversation or walk around the block or, you know, and that just the individual stuff applies. Yep. Um, Jeff Locke, I'm a student at Westminster Seminary in California, planning to go to San Francisco on a plant. Um, number 19, or sorry, 18, um, kind of following up on that question, um, you mentioned Tim Keller's book and, and him applying texts that refer to the covenant community and not to non-believers. You say here, we're not forbidden from choosing to alleviate physical needs. Are there positive texts that you could point to um, to, to aid us. I mean, I, as a Westminster student, I get a lot of, no, you can't do that. No, you yeah, can't do that. Yeah, if you just look at number 17 up above, Micah 6, 8, Matthew 25, Galatians mm-hmm. 6, 1 John 3, are good texts showing that the character of God and how we relate to the community. As far as beyond that, if you look down at 21, well, they're just general things for uh, individuals positively enjoining them, I think, uh, to be involved in these kind of mercy ministries. Okay. If you're looking for a positive enjoyment for us as a congregation to be involved in physical acts of mercy outside of our local congregation, I don't think we have those there. But I don't think we're forbidden to do it because we know there are good things for individuals to do. But we we realize it's not a command like baptize and preach the gospel. It's one option we have as part of how to fulfill another command, and we have to be very careful with it. Um, So we may decide, as I used the example at one point, to provide computers to our local schools. You know, And we may do that because people will know that Capitol Hill Baptist Church did that. And we know that will gain us credit with 17 people in the community. 
And that goodwill we may think is useful for the gospel because we're all about the gospel. And they basically d- distrust us. So this would be a kind thing for us to do. They'd be surprised. It might bring some gospel conversations. Um, it, d- it doesn't mean that we then have responsibility to make sure the public schools have good computers. Because if we start thinking we are responsible for the well-being of the I mean, I, I had an Acts 29 pastor come up to me in the fall, bring, bring his staff, hang out for a day, and at one point he says to me, after they've been pretty vigorously questioning me on this kind of stuff, sounding a little oppositional, said, you know what, I've been doing this the church for the city thing for nine years. It doesn't work. This is a head pastor of this church. He said, have you ever seen a church transformed by, a city transformed by a church? I said, no. He said, do you think you will? I said, no. I mean, God's mercifully good. Prayer revival was big in 1857-58 in New York. But I mean, it lasted for a few months. You know, until Christ comes back, we're, we're under the curse. We're in a fallen world. So don't be discouraged by that. God's sovereign. Preach the gospel. But don't buy a bill of goods saying that you'll transform the city. You won't. If you do, God has done it. You be faithful. I love the way Ian Murray talks about revival. He says it's using ordinary means and God blessing an extraordinary extent. We are always tempted by seeing the extraordinary blessings to try to do extraordinary means to get those blessings. Back off. When you start doing that, you're starting to make up a different religion. And you'll get results all right, but there'll be man-made results and you'll get all the fruit with that. Do the means that God has given you and pray. And let God be glorified by the result. More sermons to come. Free sermons right here. Yes. <laughs> My name is Mike Seaver, pastor one of the pastors at Crossway Community Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. Seaver or Sever? Seaver. Seaver. All right. Yeah. How do you spell that, Mike? S-E-A-V-E-R. Oh, well, of course. Thank you. All right. Which number? Which number? Is that all right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, number 15. Yeah. Um, the, particularly the first sentence. Um, just curiosity as I'm hearing you. Would you feel that John Piper would agree with you on on your statements, 15 and, and all of them? Um, and if he does agree with you, how do you help those who use Piper um, in the name of ministry to the poor as a as an emphasis? I run into this a lot. I have a lot of friends from Bethlehem Institute and others. So just in helping me. Well, of course, I would, I, I, would, I, would, I would think in that first sentence in 15, if John understood it, he would agree with it. Okay. Surely it is the essence of sweet reason. Excellent. Are not required to take responsibility. Because the moment you say responsibility, all of a sudden, I then am making sure the potholes are okay and all the children are fed. And, I mean, and there goes our church budget. You know, we have become about the physical goods of the community, which are all great things to be about. But in, in, in this fallen world, Paul didn't do that. That's not the ministry that's set out for us. So I would like to think if John understood this, he would agree. But I don't know. You could ask him. Yeah. Anything. Yeah, whatever. Matthew Williams, pastor, Kingsway Community in Richmond, Virginia. Question about you number. Just baptized Sarah Curtis. Yes, you Sarah. It was wonderful. Good. It's wonderful. Delighted to hear that happen. Was she from Capitol Hill? No, her family sort of. Okay. Her brother. Good. Number twenty-one. Yeah. We should expect our members to be involved in a wide yeah. variety of good works. Yeah. Are there ways you've sought to use your Sunday morning preach preaching or teaching to help your flock do just that? 
A little, not so much. Only as it comes up in the text. Um, more Sunday evenings would be used for that. See, I think a lot of you guys are starving yourself to death by only having one meeting of the whole congregation. You know, I would, here's my advice. Nobody else will ever give you this advice, but it's right. <laughs> you know, stop, stop conceding Sunday is like a second Saturday. Oh, I'm really sorry to ask anything of you. Really, we're going to give you two Saturdays on the weekend, but if you wouldn't mind meeting with us, just this. I would say get aggressive. Say, no, we'd like that whole day, please. You know, we want Sunday. Mar- Puritan, market day of the soul. Whole thing, give it to us. It'll bear fruit in your life. So assemble for us, with us for education. Assemble with us for worship. Assemble with us for, for the praise of God. Assemble with us for an hour-long expositional sermon or something. 20 minutes, I don't know, something, but good feeding. <laughs> but also, have to, what we do by coming back together on Sunday evenings is we have time to share and talk together as a community and pray about matters. And that's the place where I can highlight Habitat for Humanity doing something. Or somebody who's involved with a run for charity and they're wanting to use it for an evangelistic opportunity. Or so. It's just a great place to be able to have people stand up and do things like that. Now, we don't have that happen a lot. We have it happen some. And it seems to happen in clumps. I'll get like seven at once in two months and nothing for like eight months. But, but um, as a pastor, I usually listen for things like that that I think would be good models. And I'll even ask people, hey, would you mind standing up and sharing about that on Sunday night and letting us pray for you? So... That's a good forum for us. So create forums. Maybe you can use small groups like that in part. Yeah. Matt Rawlings, pastor, Greenville, South Carolina. Um, pastor of the whole city? No. <laughs> Sovereign Grace Church, sorry. I mean, I knew it was a holy place, but <laughs> wow. Well, it depends on who you talk to. But <laughs> um, What church? Uh, Sovereign Grace Church in, wow. so- in Greenville, okay. South Carolina. Um, are you guys like uh, okay down there? We're uh, we're a bit of an anomaly. So uh, what? We're a little of an anomaly uh, there. Okay. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But people are sweet to you. We're we're a little bit of an anomaly okay. there. So right. so <laughs> we we love we love the folks around us. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> um, the question is, what place would the uh, arch and Is there music- a particular number? Here? Yeah, I'm sorry, 14. I believe 14. it's 14. Sorry. What place would the arts and and music have? You know, those cultural kind of means of engaging the Whatever culture. Whatever you do, do unto the Lord. All of, all of life uh, reflects God's glory, uh, and we should pursue it as Christians unto him. That's that's great. What what means do you think they could have? <laughs> I agree with that wholeheartedly. Great. Keep going. What, wonderful. What... what what means might they have as in the church, though, as a context for evangelism? You know, is there a place for that? All of life in the church. Okay. So the metal, metal arts, livestock raising. Right. I mean, it just. <laughs> well, we're hey, doing that God in South Carolina, so <laughs> you don't have to do it here. Right. So, like, uh, particularly like passion plays, things like that, musical out as from the church as an evangelistic thing. Any, what would your thoughts be in the context of those things? Because you know, sometimes you can get the pattern of just doing like an Easter event or an Easter play or things like that, what role do you think the church should have in, in spending money in those areas and how effective do you think those are? Oh, uh, okay, a big I don't know. Okay. Um, I assume different pastors are going to differ on this. Uh, we would not have plays and such at our okay. church um, because I would feel that would be a, a sort of wrong constraint of conscience and violation of the regular principle. If we had members who want to do one, we wouldn't discipline them for it. I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> We're certainly not using the church budget for it. We're going to use the church budget for the preaching of the word, sending of missionaries, evangelistic stuff that everybody will agree on. Yeah. Um, okay. We're not going to use the church budget to do stuff that is, I think, in questionable violation of the second commandment or, yeah. 
you know, just... Uh, That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think it's very helpful, but there it was. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a better answer on that. Yeah. Number 25. Yes. Jamie Leach, pastor of Covenant Life Church. What would With be your what view? With what particular responsibility? Pardon me? With what particular responsibility? Head of school. Right. What would be your view of a church school? Its legitimacy, its priority in the church, and the church's allegiance to the school with respect to other educational choices in the church? Possible, but be very, very careful. Okay. Next. (laughs) Yep, right there. Hi, I'm Dave Punkashar, pastoral intern in Knoxville, Tennessee, part of Cornerstone Church. A question about number 13. Evangelism, you're quoting Keller, evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. My question for you is more about how do you, I think it's easy to ask a church member to go out, hand out some bread. I think it's difficult to ask a church member to go out, share the gospel. How do you inspire and equip your church to do this mandate as opposed to handing out bread? Once again, the key is recovering that Sunday evening service. (laughs) I tell you, you can lead your church back in the 1950s this year. Buses will wait. Uh, again, our Sunday evening service, that's where I will uh, encourage people to share things for evangelism, examples of evangelism. I want to know if somebody is starting an evangelistic Bible study at their workplace. I want to know if they've got a non-Christian family or friend they're about to meet with. Uh, I want to know if they're having an evangelistic open house or doing a Christian Explained or Explored series in, in their place. I want them to stand up on Sunday night. I want them to share about that because every time they share about that, they gain the prayers of the saints and they're a model to other people. And that's what I want to encourage. So I don't, I don't want to try to program the church, build a harness and say, come get in this. I want to teach them so heavily and fully and help them feel the weight and glory of God and the excitement and the exclusivity of salvation through Christ that they are going to evangelize. It's just a matter of me helping to teach, train, shape, give examples, you know, but I don't need to coax them into that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to teach them and excite them into that, and then they're going to be doing it in a hundred different ways that I never planned. So sharing examples is one of the ways that I think is most helpful. And then creating a culture where you regularly and normally talk about that. Thanks. Yeah, and pray about that. Uh, Ed Moore, North Shore Baptist Church, Bayside, New York. Number 15. Uh, about Matt the Merker, ki- where is that in relation to you? Matt's from um, Okay, we're in Queens. Yeah. Um, New Yorkers, uh, they're so friendly. I mean, you know, <laughs> when they meet each other, it's How you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 All right, Ed. Uh, number concerning the uh, care for those in the church, particularly widows, um, and especially so what, what in this number, number fifteen. Number fifteen. Especially for uh, widows and those in the church in this economy, recently one of the members of our church said, uh, I really need to be putting some money away because if and when I lose my job, the church is not going to pay my mortgage. Uh, how should we respond to that? Uh, and um, it's not just hypothetical because in the last year we've had a lot of people in our church that have lost their jobs. Same here. Oh, yeah. um, that's going to vary hugely depending on where you are and what the circumstances of your congregation are. Um, so we certainly have had, we've tried to identify the people who are unemployed. Uh, we have been praying for them specifically. 
We have been individually reminding them that we have a benevolence fund. People have been giving extra generously to the benevolence fund. Uh, we have been, as pastors, vigilant about privately trying to check up on how people are and then dealing with those cases um, as they come up. But that's just a matter of individual shepherds shepherding individual sheep and knowing them. And so I, yeah, I'm not saying enough on a Sunday morning and saying, if you're having trouble with your mortgage, we'll take care of it. You know, uh, We wouldn't do something like that. But uh, it just depends on the circumstances of each family as to what kind of support we're going to be able to give. I would just say that a longstanding practice of our congregation in this has been we won't, we'll give financial support pretty easily in the first request. If there's a second request, then you get an elder sitting down and looking over your finances with you. Um, yeah. And, and we found that a huge blessing, and it's been received that way. And praise God we've got elders willing to do that and give that time. Anything else, brethren? Yep, right at the back. Chad Rogers, uh, pastor of Woodstock, Georgia. What um, church? Uh, Sovereign Grace Church. In Woodstock, Georgia? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Do you know Johnny Hunt? We do. How's he doing? Uh, he's got a big church, so he's doing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> he's pretty much the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, so, yeah. <laughs> um. Well, you said that um, the priority of evangelism at church. Which number are we on? 35. Yep. In your church and in your own life is difficult to maintain. I was wondering if you could give us uh, some practical ways uh, that you schedule for evangelism in your own life, not in your church's life. What does that look like for you personally? Well, okay, I'll give you four quick examples. Number one, my daughter Anne is not a believer. Uh, I have been thinking about a particular letter I want to write to her. I haven't made time to do it yet, but I've been making notes about it. Uh, number two, Oscar is the manager of Noodles and & Company and, uh, in Crystal City. And uh, I see him on Sunday nights after service. And so I've been praying for Oscar since I've met him. And Philip, last, our Sunday night, started, began to try to share the gospel with him. Uh, number three, James is my next-door neighbor for about a year now. Uh, James, as I was on the way to Noodles and Company, James engaged me in conversation. And uh, I was glad he did that because I was walking out. I didn't see him. He was sitting on his front porch. And he said, hey, Mark. Um, and uh, he was offering to bring me to this thing. He's going to do at the museum next week, which says real cool, but I've got to be gone. I'm out of town that night. Um, but he wanted to take me, which is good because we've had a number of conversations. I've been praying for him, found out more about him, asked more questions. I found out he, I knew he was Lutheran. I found out he was Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is good news. So uh, I, I said to him, hey, you realize we may believe the same stuff, you know. And I'm just, uh, we're, we're trying to get together for lunch, but I'm praying for him regularly. Uh, number four, Paul, I've got an appointment with, 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon to go take a walk. We're starting to read through Mark's Gospel together. He's a sophomore at Georgetown who's an atheist, and he stood up at one of our college lunches about a month or two ago. When we were in Q&A time after a sermon, we'll have college lunch, and then I'll, the preacher will do Q&A. And I was the preacher that day, and, and Paul stood up and and said, uh, would it be appropriate for me to give an atheistic reading of everything that we've been talking about, you know, of how all this, how Christianity came about? And I said, sure, of course. So he's, he's very polite, stood up, and for about five minutes he held forth a kind of atheist reading of how Christianity could have appeared to have happened and seemed to be true to some people. and Couldn't be more polite. Um, so I just said to him on the way out, I said, I'd love to have lunch sometime if you want to talk about any of this stuff more. So he gave me a call. We've already met once. Now we're getting together again. 
praying for Paul regularly. Four examples. Little things. Hard in a pastor's schedule. I, I find it a struggle. Yeah. Yes. Hi, uh, Blair Smith, assistant pastor, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda. Had a question about number 22 and 26. You use language, secondary importance yep. and non-essential. Yep. How far do you and your elders like to go in delineating what is secondary and non-essential versus making those judgments mostly ad hoc? Do you mean, do we make principal statements? Yes. Are there things you'll say, these are essential, these are non-essential, so you, in a sense, bar people from coming to you and asking you to go down yeah. a particular line? Well, Blair, you're right. We do try to avoid all the work we can possibly avoid. <laughs> Seriously, it's for our agenda's sake. We do. Uh, I understand secondary and non-essential is a little different. Baptism would be secondary. Um, non-essential, uh, essential for um, there being a church together. Uh, so 26, I meant to say that I could imagine a church getting on about a particular issue and being right in this, in the overall goal they had, peace in the world. But wrong to say the congregation as a whole wants to speak toward nuclear disarmament. Because what if I disagree with nuclear disarmament? But I'm for peace in the world. So as elders, we, we just don't positively wander into those kind of areas. We are occasionally asked to, and we're on Capitol Hill, and we have members who are very involved in public policy, and I would say every few months, maybe every two or three months, I'll end up having an awkward conversation with a member, and the other elders may have these as well, I don't know, but I'll have an awkward conversation with a member about why we will not publicize a particular thing or take a particular stand. Um, I, I got a uh, brief, firm tirade yesterday from uh, a man I greatly respect, not a member of our church, who uh, really is charging all of us with cowardice for not preaching about the evils of public debt more. He's not a pastor, uh, and I think I can tell when I read this email. You know, But there can be very discerning people in some ways, but who, if they're not a pastor and they're not thinking about how to lead a flock, they're just, just not going to think through things the same way. I don't think we have any principled statements. I think we just have a settled reluctance. Uh, to take on issues. So if you can imagine a legalistic church where we manage, like, how long your skirt is and, uh, you know, how, how far you need to bow when you're in the presence of a pastor, we're the opposite from that. If we could avoid knowing anything about your life, kind of we will. Uh, now, as individual pastors, we will be involved lovingly, you know, in lives. And if we come around an elders meeting and we're asking to go through the membership directory and we find out somebody that nobody can say how this person's doing, well, that's an alarm bell, and we're rebuked, and then somebody will go and take initiative toward that person. But on the whole, if I'm dealing with garbage in somebody's life, I'm not bringing it to the elders' meeting. They're not hearing about it. So we're not churning up a lot of issues to be dealt with all the time. We try to avoid them. An issue has to be really stealthy and clever before it actually gets to the elders' agenda. Um, but that's not principle. That's just instinct. So nothing we can share in writing. Though you're welcome to visit an elders' meeting sometime if you want. That'd be useful. Yes, Mark. Thank you. Uh, Mark Mullery. Um, was I supposed to stand up? Sure. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to make sure I get this all right. Number 10, uh, Sovereign Grace well, Church, Fairfax. I'm a pastor. Okay. Um, and you may have already spoken to this, Mark. Uh, 
but I wanted to make sure I'm a little slow on the uptake, and I may have missed it. When it comes to actions that are appropriate for Christians, and then that last phrase, and for congregations, yeah, I'm curious how that works. Yep. And is that kind of bubble up from members, or is that something initiated by elders, or what does that look like? Good eye. If I left a place you can sell the Queen Mary through in these 35 statements, it's number 10, and it's that last those last three words. So well done, Mark. Well cited. I'm not trying to sail the Queen Mary through it. Uh, we would let it bubble up from the congregation. And we would be very slow about owning it as a church as a whole, doing anything more than praying for. And many times we would not even pray for. You know. So if somebody has a particular initiative, initiative to reduce the national debt, that's not making it to the Sunday night service. They're welcome to tell their friends about it all they want. You know, and pray for it. And, you know, but that's not going to make it to the to the church floor in a sense. Computers in the schools would be, you know, an opportunity or need. Somebody hears about it. They get excited about it. They talk to people. Maybe they talk to an elder. And it's going to wind its way through. It's kind of like the answer to Blair's question. It's the last resort that it actually comes to the elders. and has to be an action officially of the church. We would much rather it be of the members. Then we don't have to staff it. We don't have to finance it. We can pray for it. And more stuff happens. And we don't have to have the smarts to figure out that we should do it. It's just the church naturally responding to its setting as Christians. Other thoughts, questions? We have a few minutes left. Yep. Kyle Huber, pastor of Green Tree Church, Lake Harbor Township, New Jersey, number 19. Uh, as a PS to that, you talked about the cooperation with other churches, organizations, and that you might even do it with a Roman church or an atheistic organization. Is that differ from how an individual might in your reaching them and working with them be involved with someone who is Catholic, who is an atheist, and what a, an actual church in a recognized official minister outreach you're partnering with, atheistic Roman Catholic organization, how does that work differently and not create real problems with the people in understanding where our partnerships are and, and who we partner with and what their values are? Good question. Um, yeah, I think as individuals, it's a much easier question. Um, I think as a church, because you're not just one individual and people can misunderstand you for days and weeks and months and you're not being able to correct it because you don't talk to them because you're a whole church and it's just your reputation, you're right, you do have to be a little bit more careful. Um, and that's why I would just say you just articulate again and again uh, cultural mandates to all people. Uh, something like pro-life, I'm quite happy to work with Mormons and atheists on that issue. I don't think anybody will confuse us for being Mormons or atheists because we work with them on that issue. I'm quite happy to go in with the Roman Catholic Church to try to get health care for an area if there's some reason we're involved in that. Um, certainly that would not silence us from sharing the gospel if we're involved personally like on the ground with things. Uh, in fact, I would assume our members would be doing that and be praying for it, and part of the engagement would be in order to do that. Um, generally, the issues we've had on this are pretty uh, clear-cut. The, the confusing one that our elders uh, decided not to take up recently was when the House chaplain called and asked us to have the beginning of the session House of Representatives prayer service at our building and because we're very close uh, physically in proximity and... Uh, the elders finally decided that there was nothing theologically wrong with it because we would view it as a secular matter, and we're quite happy that the secular state 
perhaps inconsistently, encourage its citizens to pray uh, to God. And in that, is our freedom allowed to pray to the real God? But we would not participate in that as a worship service. We would not want to do anything that would make it seem as if it is. But we understand there's nothing sacred about our space, about our building, and we're quite happy for that point to be made and to encourage the government to have the humility to assume that there would be a being greater than it, that is, a God. And therefore, we would be in support of such a thing that we would not view it as a worship service and due to potential confusion. We'd, so it's complex, and you have to have long conversations with the elders to figure out what confusion you might have to clean up from an event. And sometimes it's just too much to be worthwhile. Any other questions? Go, yep, Mark. Do we have your permission to circulate this? Or would you... Do we have your permission to circulate this? Circulate it all you want. Yep. Preferably not like editing cleverly little bits <laughs> to, make, to make me say, Buddhism is the best religion in the world. <laughs> you know, that would not be sweet of you to do that. But presuming you leave the thing intact. Yeah. My name is Doug Hayes. I serve on the pastoral team, Covenant Fellowship Church outside Philadelphia. Um, follow-up question on 15 and 17. Um, oh, one at a time, Doug. You're going to confuse me. Well, they're, they're related. Oh, they, no. All right. It's, it's again, about the, uh, the responsibility or the lack of responsibility toward those outside the covenant community. Right. Um, I'm with you with, with regard to it's not our requirement, it's not our responsibility to fill all the potholes and, and right. care for all the needs of the community. Right. Um, my question has to do with just as an aspect of Christian discipleship, um, do so we more not... more for an individual Christian. Well, for, for us as a church, as we disciple our church members, right. do we not as pastors have um, a, a desire, a, a, a call to... Uh, facilitate this aspect of Christian discipleship, and maybe even more so with regard to 20. I was thinking of 24, but um, because uh, materialism is such a besetting yeah. sin of our culture, and, um, so do yes. we not have an urgency to lead our people in caring for the poor, even spilling over the covenant community? Well, I was with you right there till the end. Um, 21, yes, an aspect of following Jesus is doing this. It doesn't mean that we must organize this for them. It means we must tell them this is their duty. And, uh, like I said, try to provide examples and encouragement and teaching from the Word. Um, but that doesn't mean we need to organize it and take responsibility for it as a church, for the particular outflow and outworking of it. So, yeah. Josh. Just following up on, on Doug's question. Josh, you have the last question. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, following up on Doug's question about shouldn't we create structures or help facilitate and so on, I don't know how you would address this, but it seems that part of the challenge uh, for me personally when I think about our local church of applying some of the counsel that you're you're giving is that you have a very different setting in yep. that you don't, you don't do a lot of the things that we as a pastoral team are creating for other environments. You yeah. know, the fact that we have a school, the fact that we um, create these care groups, or yeah. we do all these, uh, all these other aspects of Christian discipleship, yeah. which you might not agree with the methods of it, but we are, as a church, very involved. We're, we're putting staff behind that and, and so on. And so as we come to this topic of um, 
mercy ministry and yeah, those kinds of things. Yeah, it would be entirely appropriate for you to treat like that like other aspects of discipleship. Okay, that's helpful yeah. to hear. Oh, yeah. 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 So, like, for us, we would never have a staff member to make sure somebody works at Central Union Mission, that we get people down there working. Right. But if you guys are so big and you've got so much money and you find it so helpful, you know, with people's busy suburban lives, I'm being serious, you know, to cut up the steak and say, look, you eat it here now at 7 o'clock and we'll make sure it's going to be okay. Right. Brother, yeah, if that's the way you're doing everything else, there's no reason you wouldn't do that also. There's, I would not counsel you to have a special concern or aversion to doing that one that way. Okay, that's helpful. Is that helpful? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for that. And thank you for giving up your day off to yeah, serve us for this outstanding kid. session. Yeah, thank, thank you, brother. I have a conclusion. But I will not give it. No, it wasn't that good. Let's just, uh, let's close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your wisdom in this. We desire not to be right personally. We desire not to be vindicated, but we desire your name to be glorified. Oh God, we confess our own spiritual poverty before you. Lord, every physical need that we've had met has been ultimately from your kindness toward us. We pray that you would enable us to have hearts full of compassion Hearts that yearn for justice as your own heart does. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be individuals who live in the image of the God we've been made in. We pray you would help us as shepherds to teach your people well from your word, to example this. Help us to be good stewards of the resources you entrust to us. And Lord, help us to lead your churches well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Mark Dever, which was given at our 2009 Pastors Conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.